Welcome to the Good Reading Podcast, proudly sponsored by Book People Gift Cards. A Book People gift card is the perfect gift for readers of all ages. Simply order your gift card online at bookpeoplegiftcards.org.au. Redeem at any one of over 500 bookshops across Australia. Visit bookpeoplegiftcards.org.au. Dr. Alicia Simmons is a senior lecturer in law at the University of Technology, Sydney. Her writing has appeared in The Guardian, The Sydney Morning Herald, The Age, Arena and Inside Story. Alicia's first book, Wild Man, won the 2016 Davitt Prize for Best Nonfiction Crime Writing. Today I'm talking to Alicia Simmons about her new book, Courting, An Intimate History of Love and the Law. Alicia, welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Thank you, Greg. It's great to be here. Alicia, we all know the path of true love is never easy, but you write... Love is also not just love, particularly as it applies to the promise of marriage. So what is a breach of promise to marry action? What is its history? And where does it reside in legal terms? It was an action where, this is the way that I describe it to my students. I say, you know, probably don't realise this, but up until 1976, you used to be able to sue someone if they broke up with you. Uh, you know, particularly in the 19th century, you didn't have to necessarily have a promise of marriage in explicit terms. By the 20th, you did. But that's it kind of in a nutshell in its most vernacular sort of terms. In its legal terms, you would say that the breach of promise of marriage action resides in civil law. Um, It has its historical origins in medieval canon law. So it goes all the way back to the 5th century. Um, And it allowed jilted lovers to sue for specific performance. So specific performance is still a term in contract that we use today uh, that means that the court orders you to do something. Back then, it ordered you to marry the person. So the remedy was that you would be forced to marry someone. Um, When the action shifts from the ecclesiastic courts to the civil courts, or the temporal courts is what they're called, uh, after the interregnum, People stop suing, or you stop being able to uh, like ask the priest, who used to be the judge in the ecclesiastic courts. You can't ask them for specific performance anymore because they're not priests, they're now judges. So instead, they start to sue in contract. Okay, so legally, the action is a mix of contract. There has to be a promise um, of marriage. So that's the, the contract, an offer and acceptance of marriage. And tort, which is the law of, of damages or injuries, personal injuries. Um, And so with that, you are suing for your lacerated feelings um, in legal terms. If we go back to the fifth century, it's because marriage is a property transaction. Okay, so you have equal numbers of of men as women suing back then for for breach of promise of marriage. So it changes over time. Uh, That's the case up until the 18th century. Again, it tends to be the ruling classes who are using it. And they're using it because they've lost a serious amount of money when someone says they're going to marry them and they're not. And it's not just them who are losing, it's the family because it's the family who would generally organise the marriages, you know, for them. By the 19th century, and this is where when it comes about in Australia, we don't have any breach of promise of marriage actions um, in the 18th century here. Uh, the first one is 1807. And in that I would say more generally in England, it becomes a subject of law because marriage comes to be seen as the only socially acceptable vocation for women, that their entire economic futures come to depend upon marriage. So when someone jilts you, when someone says they're going to marry you and then they don't, 
that's a serious economic loss. You've lost the right to, to set up your own household. You've lost um, any kind of economic security unless your family are wealthy. Um, working class women can, of course, work. They always worked. Um, but you certainly cannot support children on a working class woman's wage. They're, they're paid about half of what men are. And they've got a very constricted labour market in terms of what they're up. It's a sex labour market, basically. It can be a domestic servant, a seamstress. So to this extent, the law steps in um, in a slightly chivalrous manner to compensate women both for their hurt feelings. It's assumed that you're going to have hurt feelings in the 19th century, but also for the very real economic financial injuries that you suffer as a result of the of the broken engagement. So if you look at the action over a long period of time, it goes from being an action that's sued that's used by women and men to one that's almost entirely and only used by women in the 19th century. What I enjoyed doing in the book was actually taking it through to the 20th, which most people haven't done or no historians done really. And there you start to see men suing again. So there's a shift from the 19th to the 20th century again. It's actually a lovely way to do a history, I think, is where you just get one action and you just, and you trace it over a long period of time and you kind of see these, the ways that humanity changes, just how plastic we are as people, you know, in many ways, the way that the different uh, forms and shapes that our inner lives take over that period. One of the first cases you discuss in your book is the case of Sutton versus Humphrey. What did the law have to say about love in the earliest days of the colony? I found that case interesting in that if you were to look at Australia in comparison to England, America, New Zealand, anywhere else at that stage, we look odd as far as this action goes because there are no actions. We are a seriously litigious people in the early colony. People are constantly appearing in court. In spite of the fact that they're, con they're former convicts and they've got no legal right, actually, they've got no standing, they shouldn't be appearing in court, but they do. They they sue each other over everything, lost cabbages, people stealing each other's kittens. Like I went through the Court of Civil Jurisdiction minutes and was stunned by the kinds of things that people went to court for. Um, court was sort of an extension of the pub. It was part of the weave and weft of everyday life. So to this extent, in England, if you pick up the newspapers, you see breach of promise of marriage actions everywhere. In Australia, you see one in 1807 and not again until 1825. So I found that really interesting in terms of going, right, we start, we're starting with an absence. Why is this? And if we think about the life of the early colony, it's a pretty riotous, uh, ribald, morally licentious world, I think. It's, it's a lot of fun. They're probably a lot closer to, to the way that we are today in terms of marriage than what we come to think about with the 19th century. And that largely explains, I think, why there's so few actions. So to put it simply, in the early colony, people aren't interested in marrying. I mean, they have de facto relationships. Those relationships last for about 10 years on average. Then they put a, a letter in the newspaper saying that they're going to self-divorce or divorce each other. I'm no longer responsible for your debts. He's no longer responsible for mine that kind of thing, and then they'll go on to, to form another relationship. So it's not to say that they're, they're not in relationships. They are, but they have no interest in the state sanctioning it. And women in particular, I think, are happy to avoid that because marriage at that stage meant that you gave up all of your civil rights and your property rights. You became the property of your husband. So I can completely understand why the women in the early colony were quite happy to live, you know, sort of outside of these legal bonds. They'd have separate chests where they keep their own personal property and, and things like this. So that's the general context within which you get the very first breach of promise case, which I loved. 
Um, so when I first read about it, what drew me to it was the fact that you have this domestic servant, Harriet Sutton. She's in Woolamaloo Farm. It was the residence of um, Mr. Palmer, who was the commissary and a very wealthy man. Um, and he had these tobacco plantations there and whatever. Anyway, Harriet was, had been sent there to work as a domestic servant. She hated that, as did most domestic servants, desperately wanted to get out, apparently was dating a range of different men or dating in, in today's parlance. It came out in, um, in the case that she definitely had quite a few suitors on the go when in walks a very, I would say even by today's standards, a dashing man, a, a real kind of Lothario sort of looking guy. You know, he he has these swarthy kind of features, thick, bushy eyebrows, long hair. Um, he's got a hat. He's he's sort of, um, I describe in the book him in the book as an aristocrat gone to seed. And I think that's what he looks like. So he's the government mineralogist, Adelarius William Henry Humphrey. You get the testimony of the of the other workers on the farm and they all say, oh, yeah, we saw them flirting all the time. There was one time they were tossing his hat to each other. Another time I saw them kissing in the hallway. And then one of the servants said, you know what, I actually even accompanied them out to the fruit grove one night. Um, and Harriet asked me to go along and, and he asked me to go along as well. Um, and he said, you know, I want you to come because I'm going to make her a promise. And sure enough, uh, this, this servant says, he swore under the heavens and the moon that he loved her and that he would marry her. And we're not certain because Adelarius denies this, but my take on what happened is that they probably organised for her to elope with him or her at least to run away. She wanted to get out of there. So she wakes up very, very early one morning. She dresses in men's clothing. Um, she sneaks out of the house, completely dressed up as, as a male servant, um, and she walks the six hours that it would have taken to get to to. Parramatta. By the time she's gone, father who's in Newcastle gets alerted. Everyone's alerted. The whole colony's involved. She ends up making it to, to Parramatta just as people are kind of closing in on her. But, but uh, Adelarius's servant actually meets her on the road and says to her, um, you know, Adelarius is waiting for you or whatever in, in the house. Adelarius, of course, denies all this. He says, oh, I had no idea. She's meant to serve it on the road. Next minute, she's banging on my door. And what am I to do? Yes, she stayed the night. But, you know, what 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 else was I to do kind of thing? Um, I, I think that he has to say that because he's being charged. I think that probably they arranged for the servant to meet her. She goes to Adelarius's, um, after which her father gallops down from Newcastle, bangs on the door and says, you know, you are to come home. Similarly, Mr. Palmer meets her. Everyone's onto it. They all wanted to come back. And she says, absolutely not. There's no way. And anyway, this man says that he's um, he's marrying me. She goes into hiding. She's at various friends' houses. She doesn't want to be found. She writes a letter to her father saying, no way am I going back. You know, I'm much happier with him. I've thrown myself under his protection and I'm going to stay here. Uh, and in the meantime, Adelarius is going, I had no idea she was coming. Stop blaming me. You know, I don't want to be sued for this. Like, this is a disaster. Anyway, the father and Governor King say, fine, you've got to give her up or we're, we're taking to court. And eventually um, that's exactly what her father does. So it's an interesting case in that every other breach of promise of marriage case is brought by the woman. It's one of the few actions where women can sue in their own name. This one, Harriet Sutton's father, who sues, um, and he sues because he says that his feelings are injured and he, he guesses, I think probably quite rightly, that Adelarius has found out that he is in fact a former convict 
And Adelarius is, on the other hand, what probably what you would call distressed gentility. You know, you're not going to come to the colonies if you're a very, very wealthy aristocrat in England. You're going to come if you've had a bit of a few problems and you're trying to make some money. So he fits into that category. Either way, he thinks he's better than the convicts, as do the judge, as does, you know, Governor King. The convicts, on the other hand, and I think um, Harriet's father really fits this, believe that they are entitled to all the rights and privileges of any subject of the British Empire. They believe that they are to be given a new, like, which which convicts in England don't believe, by the way. Like, you know, it's something quite peculiar to Australia. But in Australia in this period, convicts, once they've served their time, they're given land, they're given positions, you know, they're given a right to participate in society. And so he says, as do many other um you know, emancipated convicts, no way, I'm just as good as, as you are. And if you're not marrying my daughter because you think that you're better than her, then I will take you to court and I'll sue you for that, um, which he does. So he loses in the first instance and then, well, I won't give away what happens next. <laughs> in reading this book, I, I felt that at least one thing the 19th and the 21st centuries have in common is um, deception in love. I think you used the phrase, who are you really? And that's something that resonates today very powerfully. And it's illustrated through an interesting case in Stuart versus Burns, 1857. Yeah, I I love this case. So there's actually two cases. So one is for breach of promise of um, marriage and the other one is for slander um, and libel. So we're in 1857. We're in Bathurst, so regional New South Wales. Ellen Stewart, who's a governess, had been betrothed to a man called Henry Burns. Henry Burns is part of elite gentry society. He is a good friends with Mrs. Wise. Mrs. Wise is part of the Wise family who are the, the leading legal family or one of the leading legal families at the time. There's Justice Wise there's um, who's on the Supreme Court. Um, they're very good friends with the Forbeses, the Pinnocks, what I came to discover in this, so I had this vision of this, of a bit of a, bit of a snobby rural world. In Bathurst, it's all revolving around Mrs. Wise's house. So anytime that the judges come to town, anytime any dignitaries come, they stay with Mrs. Wise. So Mrs. Wise is um, living in, she's living in her big house and she's lonely. You know, she's got no one of her own status to talk to. And at some point in Sydney, she meets a woman called um, Ellen Stewart. And Ellen Stewart has impeccable manners. She's considered the ornament of society, but she's only a governess, basically because her family had lost, you know, a lot of their money. We're not entirely sure why. But Mrs. Wise says to Ellen, I tell you what, stop being a governess. Just come and live with me as a lady's companion and be my friend. Um, so she does that. And while she's there, she meets Henry Burns, who owns the shop in, in Orange. And they seem to like each other. Henry probably likes Ellen a lot more than Ellen seems to like Henry. But she knows what side her bread is buttered on. She knows she needs marriage in order to be able to, you know, have some kind of autonomy and survive. So when he proposes to her, she says yes. At the same time, she's quite clearly, I think, attracted to another guy called Charlie Wise. And I did see a photo of Charlie Wise, actually. Charlie Wise had this very thick moustache, very dark hair, you know, kind of a um, bit of a cat about town. And he's also Mrs. Wise's son. And so he's single. They're in the same house together. Poor Henry Burns is in orange, writing these love-lorn, love-stricken letters to Ellen. Ellen is still engaged to him, but it's quite clear that she's pretty into Charlie Wise. 
they have a ball and then comes this letter, which was the first thing that I read about the case. And Mrs. Wise writes it to Henry Byrne immediately after um, the ball that she has the, the night before. And it says, strictly private and confidential and keep this. It says, my dear Mr. Burns, it grieves me very much to be obliged to write to you as I must do. Before your engagement, I had doubts, this from the best of motives. I struggled against them, confessing them only to yourself, and I may say to herself. And yet, all of Sunday afternoon was passed together in the manner of Saturday evening. The evening on which you left could not be mistaken by anyone who witnessed it. And then she describes the ball. And she said, we've had parties each evening since, and I too found that ill was only before me. There was intimacy and romping dancing with Charlie Wise, enough for the whole room to remark, and other conduct convinced me at once that she, meaning Ellen, was deceiving both you and me. She, I must say, as well as her mother, so completely threw off the mask that they've been wearing that I saw at once all deception was at an end, that the daughter had been playing a part and she will continue to play her part. Miserable as it may be for you to be awakened to these facts, it's better that you'd be awakened to them now than find yourself married to one who's deceived you. I must urge you to weigh my words well and bear in mind I've never deceived you. I have your interest in my heart as if you were my own brother. Any letter that you may receive from Miss Stewart must be a deception. I've completely found her out. Okay, so it's a, it's a great letter. <laughs> And that's published, as are all the letters. They're all published on the front page of a paper. So anytime you're ending up in one of these suits in the colonial period, you know, you've got to expect all of your most intimate correspondents to fly around, not just the nation, but the empire. They're going to South Africa. They're going to Hong Kong. They're going to England. Everyone's reading each other's letters. So this one goes around. I was immediately drawn to the last case you document in this book, Allen versus Groudon, 1938. It must be her baking. That's always to blame. And it concerns a police constable, Frederick Groudon, and one Robina Allen. And you list her professions as hairdresser, beautician, clairvoyant, poet, and amateur psychologist, and a specialist in psycho-beauty culture. Clearly a talented woman, but apparently not a very good baker. What does this case say about the changing attitudes to love, the law in the mid-20th century? I was interested in this case for a number of reasons. It suggests that even though the action looks like it has very anti-feminist leanings, implications, in that it suggests that a woman's entire future is dependent or entire identity is dependent upon marriage, um, you know, and so binds them to that and compensates them for that. And that seems very regressive. And a lot of the feminists, you know, around Rabina's time didn't like it for that. What I like about it is that it shows just how much women were still working class women, because it's only working class women who use it for the most part, were able to use it to advance very feminist arguments. So what I found interesting with this one was firstly, Robina herself is just so wild and so kind of funny and she's really witty, clever and strident, I think. She basically, she's all the professions that you that you said, she meets um, Frederick Grodin. He's a police officer. She falls very much in love. Um, and unlike in the 19th century, she is very comfortable with her sexuality. You know, she writes in these letters that are like, oh, yes, I'll have a feast with you tonight or of you kind of thing. She talks about like, you know, just flagrant objectification of more like, you know, of Frederick, very open about, about her, her own desires uh, for him. 
when it goes off pissed, Frederick starts dating this barmaid. She's furious and she starts to calculate what she's lost in a way that I found interesting if you compare it to today. I think so often today, and certainly I'd say from sort of the 1950s, you've got much more of an influence of psychology and psychological kind of literature saying, oh, well, what made you attracted to him in the first place? You know, what is it about your family's relationship? Perhaps it's that, you know, perhaps it's kind of, if you think of pop psychology, that's that's often what people do. Um, and in so doing, they're individualizing it, they're privatizing it, they're saying that the problem's their own, they're, they're placing an enormous burden upon themselves. Whereas Rabina does none of that. It's all his fault. She's furious. She's got like, there, there are parts where she kind of goes, oh, you know, um, maybe it's me. But then she quickly turns to satire with it. And I think that, that that is shown with her, which is the poem that I, I based the chapter title on. This is a poem that she writes to him in 1934. She's broken up with him and, and she's angry with him. Um, or he's broken up with her. The poem's called She. And, and she sort of claims a universal femininity in this. Um, and so she says, uh, she critiques first the rigid notions of beauty that women are subject to. So she says, oh, her legs are too thin and her head is too small. Um, she's nothing, she's little to lose and nothing to gain in this passy age where she might be vain. And then the final lines of the poem run, the pots and pans she simply adores. Oh, yes. And he's wonderfully happy just staying indoors. She's not a bit selfish, as you will see. Oh, but she can't get a husband. Poor thing, what a shame. It must be her baking. That's always to blame. And she writes other letters to him as well where she kind of, you see her starting to tally up the costs of what she's lost, of the amount of emotional labour and physical labour that she's already given to him. She goes, well, come on. You know, like when you were sick, I nursed you. Where are you now? Like, I expended this amount of money on this. I lost business because of this. And she's starting to do what the law naturally does in these cases, or does anyway in these cases, which is economically quantify the costs of a broken heart. And what I found fascinating with Rabina and more so other cases around this period is that women start to sue on their domestic labour. So you've got a case in 1933 involving a woman, Kathleen Brown, who sues a man called Charles Shearston. And she claims for the 10,000 dinners that she cooked him over the course of their courtship. And she, the barrister says, I'm, I'm valuing these dinners very, very highly. And she wins. She wins an extraordinary amount of money. If we use the very first case for breach of promise of marriage, it's, she wins £100. Um, that translates to about $180,000 at the time. So you're talking about big, big costs, like big damages that you get. The idea is, is that you're setting the woman up for life. So usually you would sue just on your lacerated feelings and what the settlement is what it's called, which is basically what you've lost in the marriage itself. By the 20th century, they also start to go, hang on, I nursed you and I want to claim for all of that money um, that I would have otherwise gotten as a nurse when I nursed you. Or I did your housework. I want to claim for the 23 years of housework, you know, labour that I did. So I find it interesting in that their arguments are around the economic valuation of care work and domestic labour that we're still talking about today. If you look at the history of this stuff, we tend to date it to the 1970s to the um, Wages for Housework campaign, uh, the uh, middle-class feminists around then. There's some work that that says, oh, no, it went earlier back to Linda Littlejohn, who was a very, very famous uh, feminist in the 1930s. Again, all of these people are very, very middle-class. What I love about this is that it's not middle-class people, it's working-class people who are actually the first people to bring these arguments forward. And they're doing so, I think, because working-class women have always received a, a certain pecuniary 
some or have always received wages for their domestic labour. It's not such a huge thing for them to go, oh, my God, domestic labour might have a, a price on it, which it is for middle class women. We're like, oh, wow, amazing. That's a labour of love. You just do that for your kids or whatever, your husband. You know, in this, it's it's actually them going, no, like, you know, actually what I was doing was work and so I'm going to claim for it. So if you compare it to, to the debates that we're having now, they look a hell of a lot more sophisticated, a lot more advanced than, than we have. So I liked Rubina for that. I also found her fascinating because she was part of another movement that I found really interesting in looking at the cases, which was a shift in how people responded to heartbreak. Okay, so in the 19th century, they dissolve into tears. They do a lot of sleepwalking. There's a lot of testimony of sisters going, she was shrieking through the corridors as, you know, she was sleeping, walking all night. None of us have been able to sleep for two weeks. You know, it's a disaster. By the 20th century, particularly around the 1890s, they start to claim that they've got physiological effects from it. So they say that they've lost the use of an arm. One woman says that she's gone blind. You start to have doctors appearing in court, um, testifying, you know, as expert witnesses, testifying around heartbreak. The other thing that starts to happen around that time, and Rabina is part of this, um, is that the women become very, very violent, particularly around 1880 to, I'd say, around 1920. Rabina's later, and by that stage it's a problem and she loses her case. But in the 1880s to 1920s, it's completely fine. And, in fact, the, the courts condone women. Like, I don't know, doing everything from one woman um, is broken up with by her guy in, you know, in a park in Potts Point and she bashes him over the head with her brolly. The court hears about this and they go, good, so you should have. Um, you know, I've often thought that the men, you know, deserve some kind of punishment like that. They're quite extreme. There's a woman in Melbourne who shoots her partner or tries to shoot him. She misses, but she fires four shots at him and she also gets off. So she starts with manslaughter, gets off from that, and then she sues him for breach of promise of marriage. And the courts go, yeah, absolutely. You know, he needs to be taught a lesson. I mean, it's, I found it extraordinary. And it's basically about a, a moment in history where I think the courts and society in general is trying to, to enforce a model of, of domestic responsibility for men. You know, if you think about that period, you've got Henry Lawson, you've got A.B. Patterson, you've got this idea of a rough and tumble kind of roving masculinity that would head off to the back of Burke or whatever, untrammeled by women and domestic obligations and write poetry under the stars or would, you know, engage in sharing with a bunch of other blokes. And I think that there's a bit of contestation going on. There's a lot of contestation, in fact, going on at this stage between that model of masculinity and a more domestic model of masculinity that I think the courts are trying to impose, which is one where they say, hey, you've got to honour your promises. If you've made a woman pregnant, you've got to marry her. Otherwise, it ends up being a burden on the state. And so I think that in many ways, you see the courts outsourcing its punitive power to the women um, and allowing them to punish men in a way that the state would not usually do and certainly don't allow after the 1920s, which is why Rabina loses. But, you know, after that, she then becomes a famous columnist and you can read her for the next 10 years writing furiously to the op-ed pages. <laughs> She's great. She's one of my favourite people. The introduction of the Family Law Act in 1975 was criticised by some as placing the institution of marriage in crisis. But it was a significant moment for women and for feminist consciousness in general. Should this act be regarded as a watershed moment for women, or is there much more to the regulation of love and marriage that we should consider? I think it can be all of those things at once. So I think on the one hand, you've got the abolition of the action because it's out of step with modern intimacies. You know, by the 1970s, 
And certainly, even by the 1950s, which is really when women stopped using the action. So it kind of goes into disuetude after that. But um, from around that time, the idea of marrying for anything other than love becomes distasteful. You know, in the early 20th century, there's still significant proportions of the population who would accept economic considerations as a part of marriage. You know, you do want a house or, you know, that you might be kind of financially dependent in that way. And that's considered to be something that it's absolutely reasonable to weigh up. Um, by the 1950s, and this bear is born out in the English literature as well, there's much more of a kind of cult of romantic love, I think, that that develops as the sole reason and as to why you would marry. And that goes along, obviously, with the post-war boom. I think that there's economic reasons behind that. People now have the luxury to be able to marry for love alone. So the idea of forcing someone or, or suing someone because they didn't go through with a marriage to you in spite of the fact that they no longer have the feelings starts to sound odd um, and, and distasteful. So there's that reason. There's also the fact, as I said earlier, that that the action itself starts to look like it's really patronising to women, like the courts need to come in and give you some kind of salve for a broken heart. It's sort of seen by that stage as, well, you know, marriage is not what you your only option in life. You've got a whole range of different jobs that you can do, so many different ways in which you can participate in society. To suggest that women are so dependent upon marriage starts to look very Victorian era. So in those ways, it looks like, definitely looks like um, progress, you know, and it's generally seen as, as um, you know, being a product of the fact that women are have a higher social status than they had ever had before. Um, what I questioned in the book was whether that was all that was going on. Uh, and I did that because I thought about what we do today. It's not like love isn't governed today. It's simply that it's governed by psychology, you know, rather than law. You no longer go to um, a court or, you know, see a barrister or someone breaks up with you. You become a self-help book. You talk to your friends. You, I don't know, listen to whatever podcast or whatever, but it's basically pop psychology in various forms that determines our explanatory structure for it. I think you call it the coming of the counsellors. The coming of the counsellors, indeed. And you do see it in that legislation. So the legislation that abolishes breach of promise, and this is also what made me think about it, was partly I was thinking, well, what do we do today? And then I and then I turned to the legislation and went, wow, this legislation actually gives more money to premarital counselling than had ever been given before in Australian history. And I was like, of course, that's what's going on. And that's exactly what went on with the Family Law Act as well. A bunch of an army of counsellors into the courts and in so doing I think what you see is psychology taking over the jurisdiction of love that the 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 court that law relinquishes its right to govern it relinquishes its authority over love um it's happy to vest that in psychology and instead it now concerns itself with property custody taxation wills migration all of that kind of stuff that may be a part of a relationship the actual emotions, the court used to weigh in on it. You know, the court, in all of these breach of promise cases, you've got judges going, and I've seen the, the judges' notebooks. I, you can see their scribblings on the side going, it appears that she did really love him. I could tell this through blah, blah, blah. They are they are really weighing up. They're concerned. They've got a therapeutic kind of imaginary in some ways, and they are concerned about um, about intimacy, and they, they give themselves the authority to judge on it. By the 1970s, they no longer give themselves that authority. They they give that over to psychology, um, and I think that that is definitely what we see in the in the action. If we trace it from the beginning to the end, what we're seeing is a shift from law to psychology um, in the governance of love. 
And I guess I was interested in whether that was actually a good thing. Sure, I, I love the first two parts. Excellent. Marry for love. Good. Like, how is that not a bad thing? Um, you know, women's high status for sure. But I think that we've ended up individualizing and privatizing something that was once a public debate that we had far more ethics around. These days, it's all about following your own truth, living by your own laws. And that's fine. But I think that that maybe we've lost something in, in thinking about ideas of duty and care and honor and promise keeping. They sound terribly quaint and kind of Victorian, but I think that they all speak to a broader notion that there's an ethics of care in how you should treat somebody else. And, um, and that people are very vulnerable in intimate situations. And it worries me with apps and stuff like that, that that maybe we've become a bit callous with it. And I think that that's also borne out in the law, the fact that there's just no, there's no um, actions or there's no damages, sorry, that you can sue for emotional injury around, you know, things like romantic fraud. You can, you can take someone to court, you can get your money back, but you're not going to get anything for emotional injuries, you know, with that. Um, so we've stopped taking emotions seriously with this. And if you look at it over the course of history, we're anomalous in so doing. From the fifth century, we have taken it seriously. We've given people money for lacerated feelings. We're, we're living through a tiny, tiny blip in time where we no longer do. And I just wonder whether that's a good thing. In fact, I don't think it's a good thing. Well, it's a wonderful book and it's been great to talk to you. And from all the lovers in the world, jilted, heartbroken <laughs> and lovers of the law, we all thank you and thank you for joining me on the Good Reading Podcast. Thanks so much, Greg. That was a delight. I've been talking to Alicia Simmons about her book, Courting, An Intimate History of Love and the Law. It's published by La Trobe University Press, and you can find it at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. My name's Greg Dobbs, and thanks for listening. This Good Reading podcast was brought to you by Book People Gift Cards. Share the joy of reading with a Book People Gift Card. To find out more, visit bookpeoplegiftcards.org.au.